this Sunday between Christmas and New Year's, worshiping together with us. Our attendance is a little down this time of the year, either because of the fog this morning or the holiday season or the word got out that my brother Ed was going to be speaking this morning because that will keep a lot of people away right there. Anyway, we're glad that Ed is here. He's hanging out with us over the next couple of days, just kind of enjoying the holidays. His wife, Gail, is with him and his daughter, Elizabeth. Anyway, let's give a big, warm celebration. Welcome to Pastor Ed. It's always a delight to be with you. Good morning, good morning. 2010 is about to slam us. And uh, so I thought I'd talk with you about how to predict your future without uh, crystal balls, palm reading, or using the stars. But how you can actually connect with God and begin to, to hope for and see a new future that you actually have a part of participating in. Our text this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And uh, this is the tail end of of verse 21. All things are yours. Very provocative statement. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos, whether Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all things are yours. Paul is opening up a huge can of worms for us to understand that we somehow can participate in what our world looks like. That there is a degree of authority that's been vested in the believer, in the person. And we see this unfolding uh, in Genesis, in the Genesis narrative, where God creates human beings and he says that, that we would rule. It's a God phrase. We would actually participate in ruling in the world. And somehow Paul returns to this. We know we lost that place in what we understand uh, in Christian thought as the fall. And we were ruled over. But somehow because of the story we've just celebrated in Christmas, there's been a restoration, a recapturing of a dream that was lost, that God had. Where human beings could actually participate with God co-ruling in the world. And you and I as believers have got to come to grips with what this means for us. Now some folks believe that whatever is to be will just be. They contend that that we have nothing to do with the future, that the future is God's sphere. And uh, uh, on this view, even our praying is sort of an aside. We're just really just, you know, God's going to do what he's going to do anyway. So we just pray to sort of agree with it. Uh, And faith to such a believer is nothing more than an agreement with what is determined to be. Not by us, but by God. And, And this kind of reminds me, this idea that we have no control kind of reminds me of this old story of this, these two brothers that were just a year apart or so. They grew up on a family farm and Bill and Tom were their names. Bill, Bill was the eldest of the two. But Tom always seemed to shine. I mean, the guy, he grows up, he has honors in school. He's a, you know, football star. He goes to college, gets a great degree, top of his class, marries his childhood sweetheart, has a couple of wonderful children. Life is always grand for Tom. Bill, on the other hand, wasn't quite so fortunate. You know, he sort of was a kind of a loser in high school, you know, got in trouble a lot, you know, went to college, dropped out, married this girl, ended up in a really painful, horrible divorce. And, uh, you know, he, they both end up in their middle years, you know, in their 50s. And 
and uh, you know, Bill is just always a little despondent. By this time, Tom had you know very naturally taken over the taken over the uh, the management of the farm, and so you know, here's um, <clears throat> Bill out in the uh, field one spring afternoon plowing for the spring uh, planting. And as he's driving down, he hits a bump. The tire falls off of the tractor. The tractor lands, crushing Bill. And as he's breathing his last breath, you know, gurgling, dying, he says to God, why? Why has my life always been so horrible? And why have you blessed Tom so grandly? And after just a short pause, this voice thundered out of heaven. I don't know, Bill. It's just something about you that's always ticked me off. <laughs> as silly as that story sounds, um, it isn't far from how people view what happens to them, why it happens to them. They just sort of think that God's responsible. That stuff that happens, whether it's our success, whether whether it's our failure, on the most part, human human effort and human activity is inconsequential. People of faith can be the worst about this because they, they, they just believe in this idea of sovereignty in such a way that personal effort isn't really that big of a deal. So if their marriage falls apart, what do you hear them say? Well, maybe, maybe it was never meant to be. Or if they stay in these dead-end jobs, they never go to school, never develop their skills or their talents or their capacities, they think, well, you know, the Lord will just maybe prosper me someday. You know, they sort of back up and stay on their hind foot. They never really engage. Uh, They think humans have little to do with the future because that's primarily God's domain, that what will happen will happen anyway. God will do what he will do irrespective of what we do. This is the definition of radical sovereignty. Now, thank God that God is sovereign. I mean, God does stuff. I mean, there are some things that will never change. Jesus is coming back. There there will be a new heavens and a new earth. I mean, God is going to sovereignly make that happen. There's going to be a judgment one day. That is sovereign. But there's lots of stuff that isn't sovereign, that God doesn't choose. There are actually things that we get to participate in. In fact, the truth that radical sovereignty is, is just, you know, that God's always in charge in every moment of everything that happens in the world is really just a retread of an ancient pagan philosophy known as determinism. The pagans, those without faith, used to think that the future was really not anything but a cycle. That, that it was that, that, that time was just a cyclical, repeating, over and over pattern that no one could change. Just like spring, summer, fall, winter, spring, summer, just, you couldn't change it. So all we could do is sort of participate and not fight against it. They thought that was what the world was about. And during the Reformation... In the 1500s, determinism found its way smack into the middle of Christian theology under the banner of sovereignty. And it got to the point that some actually believed, it got so radicalized, that some actually believed that whether people go to heaven or hell has been predetermined by God even before they arrived on the planet. How many of you ever heard that? Some of you grew up in that. Right? This was not the historical, orthodox, biblical view, radical sovereignty. In fact, God's, this is God's sovereignty on steroids. Right? When, even though there's things that are going to happen, because God said they're going to happen, Christian thought holds that much of the future is not, it, it's a dynamic thing. It's not a fixed 
root, you know, uh, cyclical thing, but it's a dynamic thing. In other words, it's something that God creates in real time. The future is being created and it hits us. And it, it's not cyclical. The future is sort of hot out of the oven from God's heart to us, which means things can be different. <laughs> that, that's the message of Christianity. I'm, I man, that's good news, dude. Things can, we don't have to accept that things are just going to be uh, the way they are, irrespective of, we, of what we do. We can actually trust God to transform situations, transform people, transform homes, transform cultures. We can actually trust that God sovereignly designed His beings to matter. You matter. There's a really interesting text in First Kings where the, the backstory is this prophet Micah is aware that God wanted this king, this king dude, whose his name is Ahab, God wanted him to die. I mean, that was his sovereignty. The guy needs to die. Uh, There's a bunch of reasons behind that, but he needed to die. But how he was going to die you know, what were the circumstances around it is what Micah's dealing with. Listen to the text. So Micah continues. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with a host of heaven. These are angels standing around him. There was a bunch of them on the right, a bunch of them on his left. And the Lord said, okay, guys, angels, who's going to entice Ahab into attacking these other guys and go to his death? And then watch. This one angel steps up and suggests this. Well, what about this? And another one steps up and suggests that. What about that? And finally, a different spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, well, how about this? I will entice him. And then the Lord leans in. Well, how are you going to do it? And then the guy goes, well, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouths of his prophets. And he said, and then the Lord said, that'll work. You'll succeed in enticing him. Now go and do it. Now here's what's so cool about this text. Is that, is that even though God had in mind what to be done, he invited created beings in participating how it actually happened. What if he does that with us? What if we get to be a part of a dynamic future where we get to engage in God's kingdom spilling into the world because our lives matter? (laughs) See, you can't read the narrative of Scripture without being forced to bear witness to the fact that in a very important sense, human beings have a say on the way things turn out. Here, that God somehow hears and and, and, and is influenced by us. I mean, you, who can forget this amazing dispute between Moses and Yahweh when God on Mount Sinai in Exodus 32, when God has vowed to wipe out idolatrous Israel, he said, they tick me off, they got to go. And, and he is moved by this impassioned pleas of Moses. And the scripture says, as Moses is saying, Lord, and talks to him, the scripture says that God changed his mind. Or, or, what reader can keep from rubbernecking when you start running across texts like the one in Isaiah 38 where this righteous Hezekiah has been just told by Isaiah the prophet, the big time prophet Isaiah. Isaiah walked into him. God had spoken to Isaiah and said, go tell Hezekiah he's going to die today. So he goes into Hezekiah's room and says, Hezekiah, God spoke to me. You're going to die. Now that's going to change your plans for that day. And the scripture says that Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and he wept. And it says God saw Hezekiah's heart. And the divine sovereign decree that he was going to die that day was changed. 
What if from a biblical standpoint, human beings actually are participants in making history, in creating the future? How cool is that? See, here's my point this morning. You and I get to participate in what 2010 looks like for us. We get on some level to predict the future by how we respond to and open our lives up to God. I mean, if God had really wanted to create a world where humans couldn't control anything, then why did he fill the world with laws? I mean, laws so specific, so predictable, that we could actually send a person to the moon and predict the exact within a fraction of a second the time in which they would land there. I mean, that kind of specific kind of planning, we can be done with these laws. What if God created laws precisely so that human beings could have more control over their lives that somehow you and I, made in the likeness and the image of God, could rule in the world? What if there's more authority than what we realize. Takes us back to our text we opened with, where Paul says, all things are yours. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, how people influence you, is up to you. Uh, the world of life, death, the present, the future, somehow we touch those things. Those things are ours. Paul also wrote in Galatians 6, don't be deceived, don't be tricked. God cannot be mocked. I mean, you, don't, you can't mock God over this. This is, this is just going to happen. A person reaps what a person sows. What, what he's saying is that we participate in the world God created, much like a farmer participates in the laws of nature. And a farmer can predict the future of a field. How? By what he sows into it. If a farmer wants in his, if he has a vision of corn in his heart and he wants corn to come into the world, what does he need to do? He needs to plant corn. And by planting corn, he selects the harvest. The, 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 the field doesn't make its own determination. The farmer makes the choice, predicting the future by simply planting the kind of corn that he or she wants. See, I, I, I don't, this isn't hard to understand. I, I don't think God is the only one determining how wonderful our lives are. I don't think he's the only one uh, that's saying this is the kind of marriage you'll have. This is the kind of financial life. I think in a large part, we can have better marriages, better financial lives, better careers, better parenting kind of situation based upon how we cooperate with the laws of God in our lives. And we can have happiness or heartache on purpose. We, believers in God always, they seem to get mixed up on this balance between what am I supposed to do and what is God supposed to do? Now, good news. Even if you're a total moron, God will help you. This is, listen, Christianity is help for dummies. <laughs> Aren't you glad? You know, you can, you're, you can be a total idiot and have sown nothing but trouble in your life and God will sweep up that harvest and give you a new start today. That's what forgiveness is. So this isn't to condemn you. This is to give you hope. That you can actually have a different kind of life, a different kind of home, a different kind of personal experience, a different kind of of way that you react to the world around you. If you're not careful, those of us who are God followers will be guilty of something that Jesus warned people about in his parable of the talents, where he said, he says that everybody was given potential, different potentials. And some of them invested them and got greater potential. Their potential actually came to fruition. And then there was one guy that didn't have all that much potential, but he, he, he grabbed it and he buried it. And the scripture, when the scripture says that the master talks to me, he says, well, I knew that you were, you were sovereign. You, were, you could reap where you have not sown. 
He was appealing to sovereignty. And the scripture says that Jesus said it didn't make God happy. Sometimes when you appeal just to sovereignty, well, it's happening this way because it must be the Lord. The Lord must have some purpose in it. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Sometimes a lot of the junk that happens in our lives is because of you. And because of the person you're married to. Right? And sometimes it's the devil. And sometimes you're worse than the devil. (laughs) But the point is, is that no matter what's going on, the good news is that when you and God start cooperating, you actually can tip it, whether it's the devil or anybody else in your life, you can tip it so you can be more of a victor, less of a victim, and can start winning. That's why Paul said, we're God's fellow workers in 1 Corinthians 3. You are God's field. You are God's building. He's, he's saying that we play a role. And if we refuse to take our place, all we're doing is giving in to fate. And giving in to fate is just like, here's a good example of giving in to fate. Leave your house for the next five years and then come back home. What would it look like? Who, what would move in to that space? How would, your, how would the house look? Falling apart. I mean, you've seen homes that have been abandoned. It doesn't take long. This world has a way of deteriorating things. Or think of your lawn. What if you did nothing with it for two years? Well, some of you have done nothing with it for two years. <laughs> The point is things deteriorate. In a fallen world, you have to fight for things not to. See, it's not just leaning back and saying, well, whatever, Lord, just do my, my friendships, do whatever you want, or I have, I'm really offended, but I don't want to deal with it. I'm just going to let it go. You let things just be settled the way they are in your heart, and you just abandon them to God's sovereignty, or you're just letting it go. You are opening yourself up to trouble. And you can blame God or blame the devil or blame people, but it's really you just have let go of your responsibility. Here's my, here's a great story. One more farmer story uh, about this, uh, you know, showing about how important it is to do something with your life. This particular rancher out west had a beautiful ranch. I mean, the beautiful outbuildings and, um, you know, manicured uh, 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 lawns and then plus, you know, all the fields and all the beautiful uh, fences, which were just, just pristine. It was beautiful. And uh, he had a, uh, his Presbyterian, he was Presbyterian, his Presbyterian minister came out, pastor, and uh, was walking around. The rancher was showing him all around the place and the Presbyterian was looking at it, you know, and, and at one point he rather piously said, my, has God blessed this property? And uh, the rancher, who was a rather straightforward fellow, kind of looked at him, you know, looked at the ranch, looked back at him and said, yeah, but you should have seen it when he had it all by himself. <laughs> See, some people think marriages are just some, you know, couples doing really well. They just were meant to be together. Somebody's, you know, life, it just, oh, it just must meant to be that way. They don't understand whether, the, whether those people who are blessed realize it or not, they're doing something that's contributing to it. This is so critical. 2010 is upon us. What will it look like? I'm saying, suggesting to you that it, you can be predictive of what it's going to be like. And two ways, really. One is by simply sitting down and daring to imagine what your life will be like in a year if you continue doing what you've been doing. See, our lives end up where they do because we are the way we are. Shakespeare wrote, quote, the fault 
is not in the stars, but in ourselves. <laughs> Most people don't take the time to really examine their lives, and then they act surprised when life hits them. And that's silly. I mean, the ancient philosopher Socrates made this statement, great statement. The unexamined life is not worth living. So you can't just turn on the TV from day to day when you get home at night, you know, and then get up in the morning, run to work and do a bunch of stuff and then turn on the TV and just kind of wade into your life, float into your life and, 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 and have a life that's worth living. You, you've got to stop. In other words, happiness is an inside job. You start down the road to happiness when you dare to examine what it is your habits, where your habits are taking you. The scriptures speak loudly to this point. Once Moses told the whole nation of Israel, this is Deuteronomy 30, he said, This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you what? Life and death. It's like a, like a, you know, a, a waiter. Here's life. Here's death. I'm setting it before you. And then he makes a suggestion. I'd choose life if I were you. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. He was telling them that they had a choice about the future. What if you have a choice about your future? He was telling them that, that if they'd act a certain way in the present, that could, they could have something on purpose. No external force, no external force determines your future. Connecting the dots between what you're doing today and where it will lead you tomorrow is predicting your future. You can predict your future. You can predict where your marriage is headed, where those friendships are headed, where your relationship with those adult children are headed, where your relationship with your teenage kids are headed. Look at what's going on. Look at how you're responding to conflict. Ask yourself the question, if I continue doing this like this, where will it lead? It doesn't, this isn't rocket science. Galatians 6, in a different translation, this is the message Bible read it to you earlier, but it says, don't be misled. No one makes a fool of God. What a person plants... That person will harvest. The person who plants selfishness, ignoring the needs of others, ignoring God, harvests a crop of weeds. All he'll have to show for his life is weeds. But the one who plants in response to God, letting God's spirit to do the growth work in him, that person will harvest a crop of real life, eternal Life, life, the life of eternity. He's not talking about going to heaven. He's talking about eternal life spilling. He's talking about he- heaven coming to earth, spilling into the world. If you and I take time to do a checkup, you'll be able to predict where you're headed. Surely as smoke leads to fire, you'll be able to figure it out. And it's that simple addition equation like two plus two equals four. Everybody gets this real simple. Two plus two equals four. So you, you put it in this context. One, two, going out every night and getting drunk. Plus, 10 years equals alcoholism. Right? 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 Okay. Or, spending more than you earn, plus borrowing and borrowing and borrowing as much money as you possibly can to keep up with your runaway payments or runaway spending habits will equal bankruptcy. I didn't see it coming. Treating your spouse like he or she is an inconvenience, plus never talking, never communicating, never resolving conflict, equals divorce. Well, maybe the Lord wants us to be apart. No! No! 
Don't blame God on that. Now, God forgives divorce. But you need to stop being an idiot. Right? You can predict what's coming. This is your future unless you change something. And here's the last little point here that's so beautiful. You can actually change things. And here's the point. You can also predict the future by associating it, associating it to changes you plan on starting in 2010. In other words, the good news about your life is you can pick a different future. You, 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 if you examine your life and you don't like the future that, you're, that you see coming based on what's happening, change some of the things that's happening and you can actually predict a new future. You, your career, your relationships, your faith, your physical health, all that stuff is subject to change. And it's that simple equation thing again. I mean, you, you, for example, in your health, if you cease to stuff your face with everything you see, plus you walk two or three, four times a week, it will equal a healthy, more energetic life. It's amazing. It's amazing. And then you won't have to keep getting healed. If you go back to college, plus you work hard on agonizing papers and horrible tests, and it will equal a hopeful new career opportunity. Right? If you, here's one more, if if you dare to put your spouse before your work, plus you give him or her scads of undivided attention, and it will equal a revitalized happy marriage. Right? (coughs) What what I'm really trying to say, I'm I'm not, what I'm trying to say is take some time to think about what's going on in your life. I mean, this this is a time for you to stop and, and ask yourself, what really needs to change? And set some goals. Think, think, decide what needs to be changed and when you'll start. Set some timelines to it. Decide, you see, if you dare to have vision to see where you're currently headed and then you dare to imagine where you'd rather be headed, you can actually accomplish more things. I'm telling you, the beautiful thing about God is that he helps us. And if you'll come to him, I wanted to read one more quote to you. This is, um, if you come to him, and, and, and you decide you're just not going to quit. And you're just going to keep going. Because the reality is it's hard to change. How have you ever tried to change? It's, it, it sucks eggs. It, it's hard to do. Because you're used to doing what you do. And I would rather have a miracle than change. I'd rather have God just kind of do a miracle at me. So that my life changes. I, uh, two years ago, I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. I went to the doctor. I was feeling so bad. And I couldn't figure out, why am I so lethargic? And he tested my blood. He said, man, you're, you're starting to... I said, no. No. He said, yeah. What do I have to do? You're going to have to stop eating everything you want to eat. And you're going to have to do some exercise. Oh, for the love of God and all this holy. <laughs> Who wants to do that? I want a miracle. So I wanted God to touch me and heal me and change me and fix my blood condition. Why? So I could eat whatever I wanted to eat and sit around in my buttocks all day. The American way. I'm an American. Here's the miracle. Is that every day I've learned to not eat so much. And every meal I've learned. Because when I start, you know, when I look at a piece of pie or something, I think, do I want that pie more than my toes? (laughs) 
and, I, and I'm living, practicing, and fighting this thing through. And, and I don't do great every day. Most days I do pretty good. Some days I do bad, and, and I just keep getting back up. But here's the reality, is my life is changing. My future is different. And it isn't because God just did it. It's because God's doing it with me, and I'm doing it with God. And my life is changing because God is with me, and I'm with God, and we're changing the future. Let me read this last quote. Dr. Kenneth Bell said, Persistence. Go for it. If you don't get it, give it another go. If that doesn't work, go again. If that still doesn't work, do it again. Only with better preparation, more intensity, and greater passion. If that doesn't work, do it again only better. If that doesn't work, find another way. Stay with it. Pound away at it. Wear it down. Discover how to do it, but get it done. End quote. To me, to me, that's the biggest benefit of faith is that we're faithful, which means we stick with stuff until they change to look like God dreamed our lives to be. Happy New Year. I'm going to invite our ushers to come at this time and musicians get ready to uh, serve our communion. Good word this morning. Good word. Amen. So the ultimate question is, what does your future look like? Particularly your eternal future. You know, many, many, many people believe that whether or not they arrive in heaven or hell is strictly God's decision. If you ask them, are you going to go to heaven? They would reply, well, gee, I, I hope so. You hope so. See, they, they misunderstand that that's not the way it works. Jesus Christ came to this earth to be the Lamb of God who take away the sins of the world. He died on that cross. His body was broken. His blood was shed. This is what we're going to reflect on during communion. Why? So that you could choose eternal life. If you would reach out and receive His grace. His forgiveness in your life. You can know God. And you can choose life. Have you chosen life today? Have you secured your eternal future by putting your hope and your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ? I'm going to invite everybody to bow their heads in a word of prayer with me. We're going to pray a prayer together. I'm going to ask you to repeat it after me. And if you've never truly surrendered your life to Christ, if you're willing to turn away from what you know is wrong in your life and put your faith in Christ, you can take your first steps of faith this morning and begin to experience His wonderful grace. You can begin to choose your future. Let's pray this prayer together. Say, Dear Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God, that you loved me so much, you went to the cross and took my punishment. I ask you to come into my life and to forgive me of my sins. I choose eternal life. Amen.